Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hi, I'm Jo Evans and welcome to Cross Section. Usually we record just before lunch on Thursday, but this week we are recording on a Tuesday. This is when today's special guest was available and that's just the sort of flexible ship we run here at Cross Section. This week I'm joined by Peter and Alicia through the power of technology, but our special guest, the CEO of the Evangelical Alliance, Gavin Calvert, is here in the room with me. A hybrid conversation, what could possibly go wrong? Gav, it's so good to have you with us. I don't really know why we've not had you on before this point, but nice to have you with us now. It's great to be with you, but I feel slightly less welcome now. <laughs> he's very high maintenance this rider agreement that he has i mean all the things you require special time slot special sparkling water a nice towels there i can see it's lovely yeah when i wrote that it didn't it didn't sound um diva-ish in my mm. head mm. and i do appreciate that when it came out it sounded that way but i'm sure our listeners it wasn't um yeah i'll make a judgment call whether i cut that out in the final edit Gab, we found out in our listeners survey that we ran on the last series of Cross Section that loads of our listeners aren't yet members of the Evangelical Alliance. Emphasis there on yet. Um, so I thought it'd be fun to give them a chance to get to know you. Is that sound right by you? All good. Okay, so first question, arguably, actually probably the most important question I could ask is, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, very much so, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Very much so. It's kind of kind of comes with the job yeah. a little bit. Yeah, good good to have some clarity on tape. Um, Gav, tell us how you became to be a follower of Jesus. Okay, well, I was born into quite a renowned Christian family, and there was a certain pressure to not just be a Christian, but to be a special Christian, if you like. And I just didn't, I wasn't interested. So Jesus was like an auntie figure, someone I knew existed, but didn't like hanging out with. And at fourteen, I got banned from church for six months which at the time made me happy because my parents couldn't make me go because I wasn't allowed to go. But actually led to a few years then of stuff that, that isn't great, but also helped me do my own journey. And so the day after my 18th birthday party, and I won't, that's a story for another day, but the day after that party, I sat on a park bench on my own in Forest Hill, South London, and I surrendered my life to Jesus. There was no youth worker, there was no music, there was no invitation. It was just, am I going to live for Jesus or not? I'm an all or nothing person. And that was the moment it was like, no, I'm, I'm all in. And so I then prayed, I'll go wherever, whatever and whenever for you, Jesus. And that was a dangerous prayer that 25 years on, I'm still trying to live out. So yeah, I kind of was salvaged, even though I was from quite a Christian background. Mm. Oh, well, it's always, it's always good to hear how um, God has worked his salvation in anyone who comes on this podcast. And maybe, maybe we should all share our testimonies one week. Have you done that before? I don't think so. Anyway. Um, Have you checked their questions as well? Oh. <laughs> you should share yours, Joe, because this might be your last episode, having asked the boys <laughs> <of their> questions. <laughs> yeah, best behaviour now on. And Gav, could you tell us, what, what does an average week look like for you? Well, I'm not sure I have one. You often get a phone call on a Monday that changes your whole week. But I guess most weeks I would preach somewhere at a church that would be in our membership. Most weeks I would uh, hope to lead some people to Jesus. Most weeks I would try and make some friends more widely to strengthen or grow the alliance. And, uh, and most weeks I would work quite hard. Away from work, um, I've got a lovely wife, we've been married for 22 years, got a 16 or 13 year old. 
And most weeks I go with my kids to watch AFC Wimbledon lose as well. So, uh, yeah, that would be an average week. In my first, I think it was actually my first day of working for EA, um, I met Gav and thought it would be good to you know, start a conversation and mm-hmm. ask what football team you supported. You said Wimbledon FC. And in my slight panic, my response was, oh, that's niche. And um, that... <laughs> It was, good, it was a good start. Unfortunately, yeah, yeah. today we're doing a lot better, so that's good. Yeah, we, we live in an organisation defined by grace, so, so um, it's been on the app ever since. Um, so Gav is going to join us this week as we look at some of the biggest news stories. The first story we're going to come to you this week has been dominating the headlines in recent weeks. On the 15th of April, fighting erupted in the capital of Sudan, Khartoum, and elsewhere in the country due to a power struggle within the country's military leadership. In some ways, these kind of stories feel trickier for us to do on cross-section because on the surface of things, they don't appear to have a clear Christian angle or a direct relevance for our lives here in the UK. But something massive is happening in the world right now. And on cross-section, part of our aim, part of our mission, is we want to encourage Christians to understand how they can engage in the things that are happening in God's world and what we can add to the conversation our peers are having as followers of Jesus. So, Alicia, if I could come to you first, are you able to give us just a bit of a brief overview of what's going on in Sudan? Why is this hitting our headlines? Yeah, I mean, factually, you, you captured all the headlines, 15th of April, kind of another civil outbreak, unrest within uh, Sudan has taken place. And I think that's I think that should be the starting point. I have observed from afar, I did a dissertation on uh, the conflict in Darfur, Sudan uh, and kind of its civil unrest, uh, the ethnic tensions, war, all of that has been going on for the duration of my life uh, and even my interest in politics. So this is a 30-year struggle for peace in that nation. Um, What took place on the 15th is kind of the two senior leaders or military leaders of the day falling out in disagreement. So you've got the Sudanese army uh, and acting president of North Sudan, General Abdul Fattah al-Bahan, him falling out with who was then the deputy leader uh, and also the leader of the rapid support force, uh, General Mohamed Abdul Delego. So they're coming to disagreement on what is the future direction of North Sudan. How does peace, how does democracy take place? I guess the reason we're talking about it uh, in the United Kingdom from a geopolitical point of view, foreign policy point of view, is because political instability in that region affects surrounding nations and ultimately British nationals in profound ways. So surrounding North Sudan, South Sudan, you've got Ethiopia, Eritrea, Libya, Chad, Um, South Sudan, as I mentioned, and Egypt. And all of these are core kind of partner relationships with the United Government. And so for the north of Sudan to fall uh, in this way is huge concerns in terms of its ripple effect. Um, I think two years on since the fall of Kabul, there's much conversation is, will the UK government get this right in terms of its evacuation policy? Will it uh, be able to support um, British nationals to leave the country? And there's some level of debate uh, around that. But 
specifically to North Sudan is the scale of the humanitarian crisis. Um, reading World Vision's kind of uh, outlay and kind of the support, 16 million people rely on humanitarian aid and support in Sudan generally. So for this conflict to exist, there's that conversation of how do you support and provide for men, women and children that are left within the country that rely on humanitarian aid provided by the UK government. So they're kind of some of the threads of why we're still talking about it today. Thanks, Cecilia. As you said, Sudan's a country that has known conflict for a really, really long time. And I think it was in 2011 when South Sudan sort of announced its independence, had its referendum, mm -hmm. that it would become an independent country. And I think that was one of the first pieces of news I heard on the radio that I was aware, oh, this is a big deal, like in mm -hmm. world history. Um, Gav, I believe you have had some experience in Sudan. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I've been. I, I've been to southern Sudan to a place called Pachala back in the year 2000 when the conflict was going on between the north and the south. Because my brother lived there for well, six or seven years digging wells um, as part of a humanitarian response to some of what was going on. And I think the one thing I would say that most stuck with me was quite how divided a nation it was and quite how much challenge people had gone through. You know, there is, at the end of the day, if you'd been, but if I, I'm 43 years old. If I'd been born in Sudan 43 years ago, nearly all of my life would have been in the face of some sort of conflict or, or, or terminal difficulty. And okay. I just think the prayers of the church in this nation need to be for the people who've already suffered so much and will now be suffering again in the face of this new conflict. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's where I was going to come to next, actually. What is it that we can do and how do we how do we view prayer in this moment how do we believe it's going to make a difference Peter could you could you give us some encouragement on that what what do Christians do in light of hearing about stories in Sudan well the first thing I was challenged about was actually to understand a bit more about it I would happily cede my time back to Alicia on that because that's been really helpful but I I mean I didn't know a lot about it I knew there was conflict knew there was fighting knew the north and southern bit but I was like okay I didn't even understand we're trying to move to democracy is that even a good idea? That's the West classic solution to everything. We will impose our version of democracy on every other country and hopefully that'll be fine. So the first thing was to get information, even to understand who's involved, what's at play. Um, so I, I do like world politics, but I had no clue. So, you know, it's definitely doing some reading around it first and then absolutely praying into it. It's not that I'm praying for a side. I don't I don't even I don't understand enough to know that. And even if I did, I would want to get more information on the ground. This isn't a country that I have lots of connections with, maybe in, in comparison with some others. So I'm definitely just praying, Father, your will be done in terms of, of, of peace in this moment. Um, but also, as we've said, for the people on the ground, I think it's 46 million people in Sudan, 16 million are in need of uh, resources. So we'll look at what's who's there from a humanitarian perspective, who can I potentially support who's on the ground, uh, financially resourcing that? Because again, I've no clue to do that directly. So I'm saying who's been there? We've got World Vision, we've got Tierpon, we've got people who are operating on the ground who've been there for a long, long time. Some of us from the local charities, I know one locally, and some people who've been there more recently and saying to them, okay, so who can I support? Um, so I want to add to my prayers, again, not to undermine them, it's absolutely critical that we're doing that and then saying, what else can I do practically that might uh, resource this situation? So I want to put those two things together. So that was my journey and was kind of the research 
to understand it, to be able to pray in a more informed way. Not that God needs my information, but that challenges my heart to pray in a more um, uh, like resourced way into the situation. And then how can I begin to be a small part of the answer to my own prayers? What can I do that might make a small, tiny fractional difference on the ground, practically supporting somebody who does have the know-how on the ground? Yeah, if I can chuck a perhaps more theological question at you. Mm. When there's these huge stories that feel so removed from perhaps our day-to-day lived experience why why do we bother praying oh wow i i think there are no there's not a british section in heaven there's just brothers and sisters and therefore we're part of a global family far bigger than than ourselves it's one of the reasons why it's a real struggle when nationalism and faith start mixing we we get ourselves into problems so if i can't care as much for my brothers and sisters in in sudan as I care for my brothers and sisters in London, I've got a problem. So, so I guess theologically, it's taking a global view and being a global citizen. It's the same reason why you have to care about um, the planet and you care about all kinds of things. We've got to take a global view, We've got to go wider, whereas we're taught increasingly to go narrower and to look after me, let alone me and my community, just me. Actually, God calls us to look wider, get our heads up and see the bigger picture and care for any of his creation, all of whom he died for in every corner of the world. Alicia, perhaps I can come to you for one last question on this. Um, When uh, this comes up with our friends or perhaps our colleagues, how how as Christians can we add something different to this conversation? How can we be distinctive? Yeah, what can we have to say um, that offers hope that perhaps is different to what the world is saying? Mm, I think something that most media headlines will not capture is that there is a church in Sudan, South Sudan, the four surrounding regions that are active, engaged, both in the humanitarian sport uh, side of things and support, but also in kind of their kind of desire to see the kingdom of heaven come and bring peace and reconciliation and restorative justice to the nations of Sudan, uh, as well as the surrounding region. And I, I guess that's kind of the heart cry of the church here in the UK is to kind of to kind of know that the church is active and alive in the region and to pray and to connect and to yes connect with kind of uh humanitarian organizations like World Vision and others that are doing incredible work but also know they're supporting local church leaders who are being responsive and attentive and pastoral and still committed to the Great Commission even in civil unrest and I guess that both the tension and the beauty that the church is still present in the midst of crisis and the hope of the gospel is still relevant um, in this moment. So I guess that's the the added hope that we can we can give to this, that the church is alive uh, during this time. I guess what a moment to, to point people to the Prince of Peace that we know in Jesus. Well, let's go from a story that's very far from home to a story that's right here in the UK. Last Wednesday, the 26th of April, the Colin Bloom Review came out, was finally published after years of waiting. Peter, can you tell us a bit about it? Who is Colin Bloom and why is he reviewing things? So Colin Bloom is, I'm going to get an independent faith engagement advisor. Um, So he was appointed by the government to look at faith engagement and to do a report on this area. I mean, he started, I think, about three years ago. COVID obviously had an impact. There was a certain practical then engagement where he called faith leaders throughout that 
period uh, very much around churches being open and closed, what they could do, supporting them in that moment. But in the background, he's been writing this report. Um, 21,000 people responded. There was a call for evidence. It's 65,000 words long. And he's really looked at this. And in short, he said, look, faith is uh, really significant to a large number of people in the UK, the vast majority. Even on the census, we know that half the people identify as Christian. Then we've got other religions as well. Religion is so important to people. And the bottom line is the government isn't great at faith. It doesn't quite know what to do. His report is entitled, Does Government Do God? And the conclusion basically is the government needs a better understanding of faith. And actually, I would say absolutely. I think that's that's true. We can get into some details in a minute, but that's the fundamentals of it. Uh, given the importance of faith, the size of the sector, the work that they do, does the government have a good understanding? And the bottom line is the government's actually pretty nervous about faith and kind of gets edgy and, and kind of runs a little bit scared. And so he's actually put some pretty tangible ideas down for better ways we could go forward on that. Yeah, I mean, get this for, for a quote. Without faith, places of worship and people of faith, this country would be poorer, blander and less dynamic. Faith is a force for good and government should do more both to understand and release the potential of this fantastic resource. That's from the conclusion of the review. Um, there were 22 recommendations and you might be pleased to know we're not going to go through every single one of them. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we'll do a special one day um i think danny danny webster's head might explode um but here here are just a couple of highlights so there is a call for the widening of the remit of the prime minister's special envoy on freedom of religion or belief to include domestic matters so so looking at these issues in the uk as well as persecution across the globe and a call for an increase in faith liter literacy for all employed in the public sector, so that includes NHS, education, um, all over, and a recognition that faith and belief is often neglected category of the protected characteristics identified in the Equality Act. Also that the government should appoint an independent faith champion. Um, Alicia, what, what do you make of the recommendations? Do they mean much? Do you think we're going to see much change in the years to come? Um, change in the years to come, massive question mark. I think uh, that's the work of our team in terms of keeping this um, faith review at the centre of all the major political parties in this country, uh, in this nation, in terms of how do they better engage as a political party um, with um, faith, but not specific, generally faith, but evangelical Christians. I guess the, the the one takeaway that I had following the Freedom Religion of Belief ministerial last year, I always thought, why could there not be a special envoy for domestic um, uh, kind of engagement, faith engagement in the UK? What would it take to for that to be realised, for that to be tangible. So I'm encouraged that that is featured. It's going to take a lot of work to both encourage that in practice and uh, in principle because of the way different governments work, how he himself has found it a challenge to keep the profile of this review and the importance of faith relevant to both the Department for Leveling Up and the Cabinet and Number 10, because faith cuts across so many different policy areas, not just in terms of engagement, but in terms of what faith communities and specifically the church is doing to support um, different areas uh, of issues across the nation. So I'm partly encouraged um, in terms of that extended special. My hope uh, is to fight kind of write an extended looking at in greater detail some of the recommendations where we should be 
celebratory and where we should have concern uh, and kind of push into that a little bit further. So I'm part encouraged, but of course, there's a long way to go for this to be truly embedded in in practice, both in Whitehall and within the political parties. Yeah, and I, I, if I jump in there, I do think this is a great baseline report. We had to get it done because there yeah. isn't much out there in faith. Um, so Colin's done a great job. He's looked at really what all's out there. It is Westminster specific, so it's, it's got some limitations, but I think the devolved can also look at it, devolved administrations, because they're not going to do their own report and a lot of the findings apply. I'd say it, we, it allows us to hold the government to account. Now, it depends on how they respond, but we as an organisation like others can say, well, hold on, you guys found this. The evidence is there. We know how important faith is and we know there are mm. ways in which you're not engaging well. So are you, and he's put some timelines in and we can start to say, hold on, you've got strategies on everything else that hold you to account. Two, two big wins for me are the faith literacy piece. I think that's huge. I think lots of organisations, the NHS, police, education, aren't that literate and they don't really understand it. At any level, all faiths, Christianity, evangelicalism, we want to do something and, and engage there. So I think that's really important is you've got to understand who you're talking to. And the second that we didn't actually mention in passing, I think could be really significant, is the faith partnership charter. Now, what that is, is basically a little statement that a local council and a church group could have a centralized statement that says, if you're offering services and agree to this, we can work with you. So lots of local councils and education groups are nervous about working with a church group or a faith group. They go, oh, I don't know, we don't, not sure. This kind of statement says, if both sides can agree, then you're good to go and you can get government funding. Now, we're away away from that as in we shouldn't be, but that would be the massive win for me out of this. Not everybody agrees, but I think that's huge. That would allow lots of organizations to work with the council, not have to every single one of them go through a whole new set of frameworks and decide, are we okay with this? You're like, do you know what? Faith groups have beliefs, as do all groups. Councils work with a whole range of groups and never challenge the group, you know, the beliefs of the environmental group over here, the sexuality group over here, the whatever group over here. Let's get that agreed and allow lots of groups to work. I think that would be a massive win going forward and would make things so much easier. But so there's actually lots of good, but they, they've kind of given it to us now and it's for people like Alicia and Danny and others to hold their feet to the fire and say, okay, let's make this stuff happen. Only then will we know if it's worthwhile. Gab, is zooming out a little bit as CEO of the Evangelical Alliance, what, how do you see the EA thing into this conversation? Um, what role do you see the Evangelical Alliance having to play as these things play out? Well, this is at least half of what we're here for. The other half is to unite the church in reaching the lost, but the half on them giving the church a clear and effective voice into every layer of society. This is what we're here for. This is what our advocacy team is here for. And this is why people should join the Evangelical Alliance as an individual church or an organisation, because then we go with a collective voice into this space, help some of these things pointed out in this report to happen, but also allow the church to be heard. So therefore, what I'd say to people is work with us on this so we can take your voice into these spaces. Alicia, Danny and others will do that wonderfully. I think the other thing we have to bear in mind, and, and I would say this as an optimist, too many Christians <laughs> think that people are against us. But actually, when you look at this report and other things, it talks about faith illiteracy. If someone does, is illiterate about faith, then it may just be that they don't understand us or know about us. And therefore, they're doing things that, that seem against us, but are unintended consequences, not direct persecution or marginalisation. So I think I'm encouraged as well that the more we're in the room, the more people understand us. The more people understand us, the more they want to work with us and see the benefit that we bring to society. So the number one thing I'd say we can do is speak up. The number one thing anyone listening can do is join up. 
and together we'll take this forward. Very well said. I'm sure we will be bringing this up again on cross-section as we see these recommendations put into practice. As always, please follow us on socials. Keep up to date with everything that we're doing as an advocacy team and with the Evangelical Alliance as a wider organisation. You can follow us on Twitter at EAUK News, on Instagram, Evangelical Alliance. And why not get in touch with us directly on the podcast, cross.section at eauk.org. Send us an email. What do you make of the Colin Bloom review? What should we have said that we didn't? What do you want us to be talking about? Our third and final story this week, you might have heard about it, coming up this weekend as we head into yet another bank holiday, we have the coronation of King Charles on Saturday. Gav, I believe you're going to something related to the coronation tonight? Well, yeah, with a few uh, other senior clergy, as we are entitled, I'm going to St James's Palace to the King's Chapel for a uh, meeting this well meeting a celebration this evening to just pray ahead of what's coming um and that would be great i think you look around you look around the nation it's time and you think many people are doing many things the thing that gets me more excited than that if i'm honest is on my street there'll be a street party celebrating where where we can meet with those who don't know jesus and talk about a true king as well as a coronated king and so uh yeah i encourage all kinds of people to get involved this week and mm-hmm. um- the coronation is going to be taking place in a church, Westminster Abbey. Um, Peter, how much of a role do you think the Christian faith will play in this service? Uh, that's a great question. I do think I want to be praying for uh, Justin Welby. Uh, we are sometimes critical of him on certain issues and sometimes support of him. And I think this is one where he's got to navigate um, being the Archbishop, if you like, on behalf of the nation and in many senses, as I read something like the priest and the pastor to the family in this moment, he's had a lot of work, as we understand it, behind the scenes, trying to navigate the family through this, bring them together, particularly around Prince Harry. He was he was asked to kind of be involved and he does ultimately get to lead, lead the nation. And, and if you look at the Queen's funeral, it was an, a phenomenal moment and people did comment so much about that same location, the prayers, the church leaders together um, and the sense of how that was navigated. And I think in his 500 odd word sermon, he did an incredible job. Of course, everybody wants more, but you look at how he had to navigate that. So I do think it's an, a, a moment to be absolutely praying uh, for, for Justin Welby, particularly as he leads us through this. Um, and I mean, I think it personally, I find it a really interesting moment as you uh, crown a new king and how we understand our royal identity in this moment the ability to talk about that and open up conversations, some of the challenges. I, I find it strange and interesting, the things that will be said around it, some of the liturgy involved. But fundamentally, this is a, a really interesting moment to spark conversation, even if it's things we disagree with. And I don't know what all is going to happen at the coronation. There might be moments to go, oh, I'm not sure about that. But why is that? What it does, I think, is open these really interesting conversations where church and state come together in this moment. Uh, and we may say, that's that's amazing, that's wonderful less keen on that but how does that work for you and that that gives us a chance with friends to have these really fascinating missional conversations yeah absolutely alicia the the role of the king in the uk is obviously very different to that of biblical times and i just wondered what do you make of the fact that the king's going to be anointed how, how do we sort of how do we view that through the christian lens I won't speak on behalf of all Christians. I'll speak on behalf of myself. Uh, I view that with a slight challenge, actually. Um, 
However, um, biblically, I know all authority is given um, to, you know, parliament, government, monarchies. And so my role is to respect and honour and to pray, intercede. And I do pray that um, King Charles would receive an anointing from above, that he would steward this role in the way that King Jesus would would desire, that in somehow through this coronation, we will truly not see King Charles, we'll see King Jesus uh, and the church will celebrate and speak more openly about that. So I think that's how I would answer that one, Jay. Couldn't have done it better myself. Gab, I'm going to chuck the final question mm. at you. You've mentioned about street parties and the fact that there's a, an evangelistic moment here, potentially. As we've mentioned, faith is going to be really involved in the intricacies of the coronation. But there's also going to be some aspects of nationalism and tradition and kind of pomp and mm. circumstance and all those things. How do we talk about these things with our non-Christian friends and neighbours in a way that kind of dissects those things? How, how do we go into the nuance of tradition that, mm. that isn't captured in the gospel mm. as it sits right alongside mentions of, of Jesus and God? Yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, as someone who lives in London, the great thing is if my neighbours won't just grunt at me this weekend, we will actually be able a chance to talk and communicate and, and chat in a, in a wider sense. It, there's a community feel to this that's quite precious. Um, issues around it are very complex. But one thing I've been encouraged by, looking at the liturgy for the service on Saturday, the posture that King Charles is taking is one of not being served, but coming to serve. And I think that posture leans very nicely into having great conversations about the true servant king that we follow. I think there are many conversations that I would encourage people to avoid whilst having a street party, because that's how to turn it into something from a soap opera instead of a wonderful community event. I think some of the comments around nationalism and history and things, perhaps, perhaps that isn't the ideal moment, but it is a moment for communities to come together and say that we are, we are one community in this space and what kind of place do we want to be? And it's a chance for us as Christians to do the ultimate thing, which is to love our neighbours and to love our neighbours really well. Um, and so if we can do that this weekend, that would be wonderful. And, and let's not forget anything talking about kings and kingdoms gives us the opportunity, the ultimate platform to very easily talk about the king of kings who puts any other leader into the shade because he is the true king and his name is Jesus. So I will be talking about King Jesus as much as I can this weekend and engaging in some conversations around other kings as well at the same time. Mm -hmm. oh, well, what a fantastic encouragement to end on and to view um, this bank holiday weekend through that lens. Gad, thanks so much for coming on and um, putting up with us. Have a fantastic bank holiday weekend. See you next time. Hi, it's Peter here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Cross Section. If you liked it, can I encourage you to click subscribe, review the podcast, share the episode on social media or tell your friends so that they can enjoy it too. And don't forget, you can email us at cross.section at eauk.org. See you next time.